Hi everyone and welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It is inevitable, of course, but every time we lose a veteran from the Second World War, it feels like a shock. It feels like a profound loss, a loss of that link to a very special generation, a generation who I've been lucky enough to spend so much time with, interview, and yet I'm sure when they're gone, I will struggle to believe it ever happened. The idea that I'll be able to tell my grandchildren that I could just pick up a phone and talk to men and women who served in so many theatres in the Second World War, who were captured at Singapore, who were at Alamein, Pearl Harbour, Stalingrad, who jumped into Normandy on D-Day, who survived extermination camps in Central Europe during the Holocaust. I'm sure that will be extraordinary to them, and I think it should feel extraordinary to us too. There's been a particular loss this week, on the 12th of October, Victor Gregg passed away peacefully in his sleep. He was 101 years old, and his 102nd birthday was just days away. Bizarrely, and I almost don't expect you to believe this because it's so odd, my kids had made birthday cards for Victor. They've met him a couple of times. We go and look in on him. And I was putting them all into a big A4 envelope, and I checked my phone. It was a message from a family member that Victor had slipped away the night before peacefully. So those birthday cards remained unsent, and now they're sitting downstairs in my house. I'm not really sure what to do with them now. Victor Gregg was a pre-war regular soldier. He served in the Middle East, North Africa, Italy. He jumped into Arnhem, was captured at Arnhem, and taken to Dresden as a prisoner of war where he was imprisoned, possibly about to be executed for making trouble whilst a prisoner, and was freed when the bombs started falling on Dresden during the terrible firebombing of early 1945. He may have been saved from a summary execution by the Nazis, but he was tossed into an unimaginable hellscape in which he witnessed things he talked to about 75 years on that profoundly changed him, made him harder, made him angrier, gave him lifelong psychological issues. On Victor's last trip outside the country, he visited Dresden a couple of years ago, just as history hit had started. I accompanied him. I took my kids on that trip, and I'll never forget Victor holding hands with my son and daughter and taking them around central Dresden and pointing out buildings that had been repaired from the state of destruction and flames in which he saw them during the firebombing. We were able to bring him together with a fellow survivor, a lady who, as a young woman, had suffered terrible burns on her legs during that bombing. And, and he wrote to me afterwards and said that that brought him some peace. He was an extraordinary character. Of all the veterans I've met, he's the one who talked most honestly about the mental damage the mental wounds sustained during the Second World War. He was incredibly articulate and he became something of a spokesman for his generation before he passed away. In this episode, we're repeating an interview I made with him on his 100th birthday a couple of years ago. Little did we know we were about to be tossed into the madness that was COVID. It was just the last few months of innocence before the lockdown. I went round to his house, made a good old chat, and he gave me some reflections upon turning 100. They were pretty remarkable at the time. Lots of you got in touch to say how much you enjoyed them. They feel even more special now, given his recent departure. If you want to watch the trip that we made to Dresden, you can do so at historyhit.tv. Go to historyhit.tv. If you want to listen to previous podcasts with Victor, in which he talks about his experiences at Dresden and elsewhere, they're also available at historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, let's just enjoy this, my last interview with Victor Gregg as he turned 100. 
So it's your 100th birthday this week. There were times in your life when you must have thought, I'm not going to make 100. Oh, no, no, no. I never had the name of making 100. I can honestly say, Dan, the only time I've felt a little bit insecure and that the earth has started wobbling is when that German officer, after the building, like the soap factory, crashed to the ground and we was wheeled into his office in Dresden. This is, okay, this is, people who don't know, this is when you burnt a soap factory down when you're a prisoner of war. Yeah, when when I, (laughs) and he said, he he said, I can't do nothing about it. He says, the Fuhrer has decreed that uh, any uh, POWs who don't behave themselves have got to be shot. So you're going to be shot tomorrow morning, the pair of you. And uh, then I felt, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to, how am I? I really felt that I wasn't going to get away with it. I thought, well, that's it. Harry, he, no, he was still taking the the mickey out of him. Uh, Harry, Harry didn't seem to affect Harry at all, what he said. uh, But uh, I thought myself, well, I don't see how we're going to get out of this. But of course we did. No, I've been in uh, all these battles and I've been surrounded by the enemy and and I've always had a sort of idea that I'm clever enough to get away with it and we'll find a way out or it'll all come out in the wash. A bloke said to me, there's an old soldier who said that to me first at City of his age. And uh, we were sitting by the carrier and they, like, a couple of the wheels, a couple of the wheels were old, the old tracks had been shot away. And we're sitting down by the side of the carrier taking a bit of shelter everything that's going on. We're in the middle of a big battle. And uh, this bloke was a real old soldier. Don't worry, Vic, he says. Don't worry about it. He says, it all come out in the wash. And uh, that's, a, that's a saying that I've never forgotten. No, I, I, even today, I, I know that uh, I've got enough sense to realise I ain't got long to go now. If I have got a long time to go, then I'm going to finish up a millionaire. But I ain't. A couple of years at the most, I think. But I'm not worried about that. It doesn't worry me. I've seen everything. I've seen the worst that people can do, and I've seen the best. Personally, I think that everybody... I think once you reach 85 or 86, I think it's time to go. Because when you get over that... You, you, you're too old to do anything. You're no bloody good. You're living on your dreams, not achieving anything, so go to sleep and kick it. Well, you say you're not achieving anything. How many best-selling books have you written since you're 85? I don't know whether they're best-selling. Well, they sold a lot, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> well, what have I got? I've got, uh, I've got about 10 on, on the shelves now, haven't I? Yeah, so I think you're being a bit. I think you're under. Well, if you include the audio books, you've got two audio books, haven't I? A lot of people, I've asked people what they want me to ask you before this uh, interview, and a lot said, "What what was the what was the what was the toughest situation you faced during the Second World War during your service before you were taken prisoner? What was the toughest battle or situation you were in?" I can't really say that because uh, being in the rifle brigade, uh, you was always right in the front. Whatever battle you was in, and you was always surrounded. If you take the first uh, city sala in in nineteen forty forty one, 
And when we captured the old of the uh, Italian retreating army, but then there was tanks. There was a tank on top of the top of our gun pit. We thought we had it then. We'd had it and then, of course. It was a city of his age, which lasted that lasted about a month. Different battles. That was terrible. The fighting at Arnhem must have been pretty tough towards the end. Arnhem wasn't really a battle. Arnhem was a complete balls-up in which there was groups of, of Allies and groups of Germans roaming around looking for each other. Well, I'm not going to say we was looking for the Germans, but the German general, Modal, he didn't have an army. He didn't have any... All he had was all these odds and sods who were being rested or the tanks were being repaired. And he sorted them out in small groups. You cut the roads, you get to do anything... Sort them out. So it wasn't really a battle on where two sides were faced up against each other like it was at Alamein or all the other battles. It was uh, probably one of the worst times was the actual dropping zone at Arnhem because that was lit with dead bodies. He was jumping on the top of men who had jumped the day before or, say, an hour before you and they were dead. I'm not going to say that was unnerving to people like myself because we'd seen it all. But uh, the majority of the lads who'd never fired a shot in anger and been told it was a cakewalk, I think it affected them a little way. After three or four years, you get accepted that that's the way of life. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're talking one last time to Victor Gregg. More coming up. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History Hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. One thing that you and I talked about in, uh, in a recent TV programme and what one something that people were asking about on on Twitter was how did you how did you go back to civilian life after spending all that time? Well, in- I, didn't, I didn't, did I? I didn't. I, I, I was a complete. I was a complete nutcase. I, I was a murderous sod. After Dresden, it was Dresden. Dresden made me completely turn me completely berserk, and. Uh, I was a sort of a Jekyll and Hyde person. And anybody with any sense, any authority was my enemy. No matter what sort of a bloke it was, anybody in authority was an enemy. And that went on for, what, until I met this German woman in Coventry Cathedral. So it's, it went on for about 45 years. Smashed my first marriage. No, I, no, it was uh, it was a battle to. I used to do all this training on this bike riding, 
Because if I didn't, I couldn't get to sleep. This is the thing. If I didn't work myself, if I, if I didn't make myself really tired, so that when I went to bed, I went to sleep, I'd lie awake overnight. Sometimes it wasn't, it wasn't constant, it wasn't constant. I mean, I could go for weeks as a normal person, then somebody would say something. And I met a few blokes who were like that. I met a chap who was in the barroom when it got sunk, and I was working, I was working, well, he was working for me, really. And uh, he said he used to wake up in the night and he could hear the blokes banging on the waterproof doors. They couldn't get out as the boat was sinking. And then I, there was another bloke, he was a rear gunner and he'd done a full term plus on the, on these heavy bombers. He was another nutcase, couldn't control himself. No, 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 it, it turned me completely, completely, completely antisocial, completely. And yet... yet You've got the good side of you wants to wants to live a life of peace, and wants all your kids around you and everything like that. And then the other half, which wants to go around leaving uh, evidence of vengeance and stuff like that, I'm going to make somebody pay for it. And one side doesn't recognise the other, and that's what's uh, that's what my life's been like. It's not really been uh, the longer you live, the longer you remember them. It's the two women, the two German women, really, the one at Commentary Cathedral and the one that you introduced me to. She, she was holding my hand all the way through that interview and she was holding me like that. And then she was, she was crying at the end, as you know, and she wouldn't let me go. And that was in Dresden when we went back. In Dresden, and that's when I felt that I, that's when I, felt that I was forgiven because... Uh, I think that this trauma, which they discovered later, I think what I suffered from, I think it was caused through a guilt by association. I used to think that I was uh, guilty for... I used to hear the screams. You can't talk to people about it because they've never... You had these people who were jumping in these water. They had, these, they had about three of these big water... Things made of cement, what they they built in the middle of Dresden, and they were supposed they were filled up with water. That was in case you got bombed. So when when it was getting hot, people were jumping in the water to get away from the heat, and then eventually the water boiled because of the heat, and they couldn't get out. They couldn't climb up the sides of these things, and they they were being boiled alive. When you hear people screaming. And you can't get anywhere near there because it's too hot. Uh, that's what it does, turns you into a psychopath. And there's no way out of it. But I felt, and I felt that I was guilty for it because I was British. It was, the British had done this and it was terrible. It was terrible. And uh, those, those two German women, the one at Comedy, and the one in Dresden, the one in Dresden finished me off. She really made me feel that, she really made me feel that oh, oh, it wasn't my fault, that she was forgiving Whether I could say she was forgiving me or not, I don't know. But uh, I felt entirely different after that Dresden visit. So I'm in your debt, really. 
No, I, I came with you. It was your trip. I came with you. I remember her name. It's Ullendorf or something. Let me ask you about your childhood on the streets of London. Do, <laughs> do you think the world's a better place today to grow up or or in the 1920s when... It's entirely different. There's no, there's no comparison. There's absolutely no comparison whatsoever. In, in those days, in the 30s and the 20s, you had to fight for everything you had. You had to fight. If you had a, if you had a shirt on, then it was somebody else's shirt before you got it. Uh, if you had a pair of shoes on, then it's more than likely you had a bit of cardboard in the bottom because you couldn't, you couldn't afford to take the shoes of the boot menders. You had uh, all these sort of... Uh, Everything you had to get, you scrounge food, you scrounge this, you scrounge that. If your mum couldn't pay the rent, then we moved to another, same street, but there was another, say, sort of land. All you move into is, people used to do that, go and borrow a barrel off the greengoers and pull or something. It was hard. So it was a very, very hard life. Now, after the war, when these couples got together again, started producing children and things, all these young people who had experienced the 30s and the 20s, they more or less made it their business that they wasn't, their children weren't going to suffer that. So they used to, uh, of course, there was all the work in the world. If you didn't, if you didn't have a job, it was because you didn't want to work. And they, uh, anything the kid wanted, he should get. Mum, 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 I want, a, I want, I want, a, I want, I want, yeah, yeah, come, we'll go around and get it there. And, and uh, the kids, I don't think children suffered. But I don't, I'm not saying we suffered because it was the norm. It's the way you lived. But children, are, anybody who's brought up after the war has been brought up in a different world, a different society altogether. And so are you, are you optimistic in the hundred years that you... No. No, because uh, I've always believed that if they've got a weapon, sooner or later somebody's going to use it. Well, if they don't, of course, we're all going to starve to death or, <laughs> or die of lack of water, aren't we? Sooner or later, that lot which live in the, on the periphery of the equator, there's going to be no way that they're going to extract a living from the land. So they're all going to move out. And where are they going to move to? Up there, it's going to, no, no, no. Unless these young young people today can find, like they, it's possible they can because they've got this technology now where they can all move to bed together in mass all over the world, and they're all speaking English, and they've only got to get onto that, and I can see them like in China, as long as he's on the same same program. No, I, I, I think, will, the, will these young people find a way out? They better get they better get their skates on. What have they got? What have they got? 40 years top whack. I should think in 20 years' time, so we'll be having trouble, if not before that. What would you say to, what would you say to, any, what would you say to any young people? How, how, what lessons have you learned? What lessons? Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm an old party member, aren't I? And dialectical materialism and all that lot. Uh, I never criticise anybody unless I know jolly well that I can justify the criticism. So, no, I, I, I just don't know what to tell them. I, 
I tell them that they forget all the past, forget land of open, open glory. They've got to start thinking that there's no difference between a brown skin and a, and a white skin or a black skin, and that we've all got the same amount of brain. And we've all got to live, or if we don't live together, then we're going to die together. That's the answer. The answer is to find a common denominator where everybody can uh, live together. I think they've got to get relig- Really, I think they've got to get rid of religion. And put it in a nutshell, I think they've got to be very suspicious. Anybody uh, who wants to run the country and said, now I'm going to go and pray that I can run it correctly, we'll kick him out straight away. Because uh, if he's got to pray to somebody who he don't know who he's praying to, well, I know, I know I'm going to lose millions of supporters by just talking like that, but religion is divisive. And you said, um, you said, you know, you think you've only got a couple of years left. What, what's it like? It's like, well, what's it like is you, you want to do, you want to keep doing things, but you can't. Now, I thought, wow, that, see, I, I, well, I'm not able, I, I've got to watch, driving a car, yeah, I can do it, but it's dodgy. You've got to admit it. So I bought myself a little scooter, it's in that room there. Uh, it does about 10 mile on the charge. It folds up the size of that. And I just press a button and it unfolds. See? Away I go. Now I can drive that round to the bus stop, put it on the bus, go to the railway station, go down to London, take it off, have a little ride to the bus stop, get on the bus, take it off, press the button. I can go anywhere. Uh, Yeah. No, I think we saw really, really, as I said before, I think it's... If we could find a way which, uh, after you're about 86, 85, go to bed and don't wake up. Well, I'm very glad that didn't happen to you. Uh, what, what one thing would you, what one thing would you change about your life? I can't think, I can't think of anything. I, if there's anything I, I, which I haven't had, which I've missed is an education. I've missed, I've missed an education. I, I, that's not because of the uh, of the schoolmasters where I went to school because they were very good, but uh, I've never been taught really. I've never been taught how to use a brain. I've been taught uh, when the Trafalgar Day is, when Empire Day is, and what's the capital of India, and what's the capital of this, that, and the other, and, and what's the date of uh, ten sixty six? What does that mean? But that's put in my brain I've never been taught really how to use that brain and uh, that's what I regret I haven't had a good education hasn't held you back Victor Greg uh, the new book is out at the moment what's it called right from in the front line life go and buy it everybody thank you very much and uh, happy birthday Victor oh yeah <laughs> I feel the happiness of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for making it to the end 
this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favor, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic. And feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.